or something that I want to leave kids with ultimately is you will be okay. No matter what happens, you will be okay. And, and being a man here, 48 years of age, thinking about the painful moments that I experienced, the bizarre part is that despite how painful they were when I was younger, understanding that the world is so vast in the big picture of it all, those painful memories mean nothing because they're so insignificant compared to the rest of the world. And the weirdest part of it all, and the thing that I actually love the most is that by the time you're done with all this and, and you know, you're done reading the book, you're going to realize that you're going to embrace those, those painful moments. They make you who you are. And, and the weird part is that as, as much as it haunted me, I'm now at a place where I realize I would never give it up. I would, I would do it again. Hey everyone, I'm Bianca Schultz from the Children's Book Review, and this is the Growing Readers Podcast. Today's guest is none other than best-selling author and Caldecott medalist Dan Santeth. He's here to tell us about his graphic novel memoir, A First Time for Everything, which encourages readers not to be afraid to engage with the world, to try new things, and that when you do, maybe you'll be surprised to discover that the big wide world out there is friendlier than you might first assume. Dan is the Caldecott Medal winning and New York Times bestselling author and illustrator of The Adventures of Beekle, the Unimaginary Friend, and the road trip time travel adventure, Are We There Yet? His artwork is also featured in numerous picture books, chapter books, and middle grade novels, including Dave Pilkey's Ricky Ricotta series. Dan lives in Southern California with his wife, two kids, and many, many pets. Before I share our conversation, here's the synopsis for A First time for everything. A middle grade graphic memoir based on best-selling author and Caldecott medalist Dan Santat's awkward middle school years and the trip to Europe that changed his life. Dan's always been a good kid, the kind of kid who listens to his teachers, helps his mom with grocery shopping, and stays out of trouble. But being a good kid doesn't stop him from being bullied and feeling like he's invisible, which is why Dan has low expectations when his parents send him on a class trip to Europe. At first, he's right. He's stuck with the same girls from his middle school who love to make fun of him, and he doesn't know why his teacher insisted he come on this trip. But as he travels through France, Germany, Switzerland, and England, a series of first experiences begin to change him. First, Fanta. First, fondue. First time stealing a bike from German punk rockers. And first, love. Funny, heartwarming, and poignant, A First Time for Everything is a feel-good coming-of-age memoir based on New York Times best-selling author and Caldecott Medal winner Dan Santat's awkward middle school years. It celebrates a time that is universally challenging for many of us 
but also life-changing. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Growing Readers podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So you have illustrated a lot of books, some of which are your own and some by other authors. Do you know what the total count is? I stopped taking count. I think the last tally that I had was just about maybe over 120. Wow. Um, and it's And it's bizarre because I used to use Goodreads as a measure to keep track of my uh, bibliography. And then, I don't know, Goodreads obviously is full of bugs. And so one of the biggest bugs was it just stopped me at four pages of books. And so whenever a new book comes out, it just swaps out another one. And so there's titles on there that, you know, aren't on the list. I'll just kind of, I don't want to say I forgot that they were made, but uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't jump to the front of my mind, but yeah, I've done, I've done over, gosh, I've done over 120 in my life. And, you know, at this point, last time I measured, I don't, maybe, maybe over 130. I don't know. Wow. Well, that's like an insane amount of books. So, and I know that you're a father and a husband and I, I know firsthand that family life gets pretty crazy for all of us. So, so what does a typical workday look like for you? And like, how do you fit the time in to create your words and your art? So it's, it's funny because when, you know, when your kids are little, um, I think there are moments where you dread that they have to stay home because they want to be entertained. And so you don't get a whole lot of work done. Uh, both of my kids now are in high school. I actually savor those days off because uh, then they just stay in their room. They, they you know, they, they amuse themselves. It saves me like an hour of a commute each day, you know. Um, so typically what will happen is uh, we also have a lot of pets. I have three dogs, two cats and a bird. And so the dogs always wake me up around 630 I give all three a, a, a quick walk uh, and then 7 a.m. You know, I, I'm, I make myself uh, a cup of coffee, get the kids ready for school, take them off to school at eight, get home by about nine, 8.30, go for, I go for like a six mile run, uh, you know, three times a week. And then I start working around, oh gosh, 9.30, 10. And then I'll work till about three o'clock, pick up the kids from school, get dinner ready, uh, sit down and, and watch House Hunters or, you know, Real Housewives of Atlanta with my <laughs> wife. But I'll be, I'll be sitting with her, maybe, you know, working on an iPad, maybe I'm writing, maybe I'm sketching. And then uh, it's off to bed. So that's, that's my typical day every day. Inner, inner spooled with, you know, maybe trips to the post office, the grocery store. I also make dinner. I'm the cook. Um, you know, I also, I'll do laundry, you know, throughout the day, things like that. Um, any errands that need to be done. Yeah. I'm Mr. Mom. And that's been, that's been, that's been my life. That's been my life. And, you know, now it, it'll be interesting because we're at a point now where my, my older son is looking off into college and, uh, you know, be like half empty nesters in the next uh, year and a half. And that'll be, that'll be interesting. So you mentioned that you go for a run and a fun fact about you that I know is that you completed the LA Marathon, am I correct? Yeah. 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 I finished the LA Marathon. So, you know, I, I've been in this business for about 20 years. And then, you know, somewhere around 2000, gosh, 2014, I want to say, like, I got really overweight and unhealthy because I was just so focused on my career and making books. And I was, I was just generating, you know, so many books year after year. It was like eight books, nine books a year, you know. 
And it's just a very sedentary life. And you're just sitting there and I'm just gaining weight, eating. And it got to the point where it was just getting really unhealthy for me. And, you know, I just found it hard to breathe and, you know, things like that. And then I, I thought, you know, maybe it'd be great to just break up the morning by going by for an, a morning jog. I mean, the other part of it was when you have young energetic kids, and I hate to say this, but the thing that got me started into running was because I wanted to, I wanted to be healthier so I could have more energy so I could do more work. Like that's, that's kind of the truth behind my motivation about wanting to exercise. But, and I, I was not someone who, who loved running. Running was like my least favorite thing. And so it just started with two mile runs and then four miles and then four miles became eight miles. And then you kind of have this thought, you were thinking like, oh, you know, if I just ran a little bit further, I could do a half marathon. Right. And then you decide to train for the half marathon and you're seeing the you're seeing the tremendous results on your body and it makes you feel so good. And that that ends up becoming the motivation for you to work even harder. And so I know for most people, it's really hard to to get on the wagon. But once you do and you you eventually make it a part of your lifestyle it's life-changing like I used to get sinus infections all the time like I really I, I get really bad colds and stuff like that and allergies and now because I've been running for about you know seven eight years now I don't have sinus infections anymore I don't get allergies uh if I have a cold or something like that it passes through me in like a day literally or or I just don't get sick at all and so it's been tremendously life-changing. And, you know, I guess, I guess the encouraging word to your folks is, uh, you know, try something at least once because you never know the thing that you thought you absolutely hated might end up being like the most favorite thing that you've ever done in your life. Yes. I love that. Well, if you weren't a writer and illustrator, what would you be doing for a profession? Do you think? You know, it's funny because this is a question that I think we all ask ourselves when we're at, you know, conferences and things like that. I, gosh, I don't know if this is tied in together, but I, I always thought it would be fun to be in the advertising business. I, you know, I took a, I took an advertising class in art school and it ended up being the most, most useful uh, class for my entire career. You would think maybe it was color theory class or design or something like that, but it actually turned out to be advertising. Uh, you know, being able to communicate with people and, and using symbology. I just find that essential. Uh, another part is I'm really passionate. I love making furniture. When I have time, you know, I have a, I have a wood shop and I'll make, you know, I'll make a table, I'll make a chair, you know, for, for friends and things like that. I haven't done it in a long, long time. Uh, the last thing I did was at the start of the pandemic, uh, I made a ukulele out of cardboard uh, that actually works and plays. Uh, and that was that was a lot of fun. That was like a two and a half week uh, assignment. Uh, but I do also have a microbiology degree because my parents, you know, they had dreams and hopes that one day I was going to grow up and be a doctor. It was with their it was with their intent that they would uh, sign me up for, you know, AP classes and SAT prep courses in hopes that I would get into a good college and become a, a doctor. And I actually do. You know, I actually graduated college with a microbiology degree. Uh, got accepted into dental school. And I was just, I was on the cusp of going to dental school. Uh, and then at the last minute, all my, all my college roommates, you know, they knew that I had a passion for art and convinced me to just try to apply to art school just to see if I could get in. And that really was the hook. Yeah. I find my life could have gone many different ways and it, and it could have, it could have been any of those possibilities. Honestly, honestly, ultimately you probably would see me as Dan Santat, uh, you know, dentist. 
that's <laughs> I think that's the final answer. I love it. Well, I want to just uh, shout out to your college friends <laughs> and any friend that encouraged you on the way because we are all so grateful that you are a writer and an illustrator. So thank you to your friends. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I tell them all the time. And yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll occasionally do events and they'll show up and I'll always give them a shout out. Well, since you are a writer and an illustrator, what do you think it takes to become one? And how do you think having a love for reading and storytelling plays into that? So here's an interesting thing. I am not, so when I grew up, I was not someone who loved to read. I wasn't someone who loved, uh, you know, grammar. I'm not, I'm not great at grammar. Part of it was because my parents never really fostered the love of reading in me because, you know, they came from Thailand. It was just a very poor third world country. A lot of the things that they gained in terms of experience and prepping for this world was, it was a utility type of, of thing. So my parents, you know, their idea of reading was, well, if you want to get better at math, you should read a math book. If you want to get better at science, you should read a science book. But reading for pleasure was never something that really stuck out for them. And so I would grow up through school and we get these creative writing assignments. And I was an only child, so I was a real movie and TV junkie. Uh, and, and when you grow up in the 1980s, there was some bizarre stuff back then. And that was kind of like my weird passion for storytelling. And you can debate whether or not an episode of Falcon Crest is good or bad, but, you know, it did foster the fundamentals of the beginning, middle and end and, you know, having cliffhangers before the commercial breaks and things like that. Um, so you do have the loose tools of the structures of storytelling. Now, when I got older, I had a paper route. And for, for those of you who are younger, who are not familiar with that is back in the day, newspapers would hire kids to deliver newspapers to door to door. You know, you'd go on your bicycle and deliver these newspapers and I would save all my money. And I had a friend, his name was Kyle Hoppel, great guy. He was really into Marvel comics and he had a trunk. He collected all of them, like, you know, Thor, the Avengers, uh, X-Men and all those. And I, I immediately just fell in love. Like this was my outlet, you know, but prior to that, I was reading Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes and things like that, which were great dailies, but you know, with with Marvel Comics and things like that, you know, it it led into, uh, you know, a, a long story thread that would just carry on month after month. Now, going off into college degree, you know, graduating with a degree, having a love for film and comic books, and then talking with friends that have a writing degree, don't typically end up doing anything with that degree. And I remember we were having this conversation, I was having a conversation with my friend, my roommate actually, who had a writing degree. And ultimately he grew up, you're gonna laugh, he ended up becoming a computer forensics analyst for the FBI, huh. right? But he was always passionate about writing science fiction. Like that was his thing, he wanted to write science fiction. But if I recall talking to him, he went to college and it was about the craft of writing, you know? It was about, you know, building these beautiful sentences and, and just writing, you know, whatever, uh, he was interested in. And I think ultimately, it's not about learning the craft. It's not about learning how to write a book or how to write a passage. I think ultimately, a good writer has the duty or, or has the skill, the ability to feel empathy. And what I mean by that is when we're telling stories, we want you to feel a certain way from our writing. We want you to cry. We want you to laugh. Um, you know, we want to offer hope. So 
I think anybody who has the ability to do these things and do them well are people who are going to excel. Now, you could say that, for example, telling a joke is is a sample of of storytelling, right? You're trying to you're trying to tell a funny story. Now, anybody can tell that joke. But there are some people who excel at telling a joke exceedingly well, putting in the details, things like that, really painting a scene in your head. And so I think the thing that separates certain writers from other writers is the ability to empathize and feel emotion and not be afraid to share those emotions. You know, writing is kind of one of those mediums where you are allowed to be human. It's the thing that lets us feel like human beings. We're allowed to laugh, cry in our own minds, in the comfort of our own homes, if we're not comfortable, you know, showing our emotions in front of other people, you know, you write it down in words, you can transmit to people how you want them to feel. And I think ultimately, the craft of writing well comes down to being able to share your empathy and having other people feel that as well. Yeah, I love that answer, Dan. I'm I'm sitting here thinking to myself as I'm reading a book and often those special moments that when you're reading a book that either just make you feel good inside or make you laugh out loud or even make you cry. It's usually because the author, or even if it's coming across in the illustrations by the illustrator, they've, they've noticed something. And it's either something that you've noticed too, and you're like, oh, I'm not alone because somebody else has noticed it too, to the point that it's in this book, or they've noticed something that you've actually never stopped to think about. And so, well, I'm curious, have there been any pivotal stories that you've read or encountered in your life? And it doesn't have to be a book. It could be a movie, but any kind of story that's just really stayed with you and you feel has maybe sort of shaped you in some way. Oh gosh. Um God, there's so many because I I I have in my adulthood discovered the love of reading. And one of those people who really attributed to that was David Sedaris, you know. And I remember one of the first books a friend of mine in college lent me was Me Talk Pretty One Day, which is probably, you know, like one of my favorite books. And I loved his ability to Hell satire in everyday instances. One of my one of my other favorite shows is This American Life, the podcast This American Life, and they just talk to ordinary people, and these ordinary people just talk about their daily lives. And and by that, I think you kind of realize, oh, you know, everyone has a story to tell, but if you tell it well, you can make it absolutely captivating, right? And so you sit back and you think about your own life, and you think, oh. You know, that might be an interesting tale to tell. And so, you know, I'll tell my kids. And for the most part, like, they're actually really engaged by things that they can relate to me about, you know, when they're growing up, right? Um, so, yeah, David Zedaris, you know, I remember hearing him on This American Life. And then uh, a friend of mine lent me his his book, uh, Me Talk Pretty, one day. You know, there's other cases where, you know, I wanted to read something because everyone was just like, oh, my gosh, this is such this is such a good book. You have to read it. And one of those books was A Confederacy of Dunsons, which won a Nobel, Nobel, uh, I mean, won a Pulitzer, I, I don't remember, like in the early 90s, late 80s. And everyone was just like, oh, my gosh, you have to read this. It's the most hilarious book I've ever read. And I remember reading the book. And, you know, I could see where the humor lied, but um, but I actually I absolutely despised the character, you know, and that was kind of a case where I realized, oh, 
you know, the writing was fantastic. I could see where it works for certain people, but I do understand that this story is not for me, right? And and that was that was kind of a lesson in measuring taste, you know? You could tell what good writing was. You could tell what bad writing was, but you could also tell why you like something, but I think it's equally as important to read something and understand in, in a very complex manner why you don't like it, but why everybody else does. Yeah. Okay. Because I think some people will just generalize and say, I didn't like this book, therefore it's not a good book. It can be both things. It can be a good book that you don't happen to like, right? And so I think, you know, for anybody who's out there who's writing, you have to be very critical about that, about the criticism you receive about your own book reviews, or, you know, maybe reading something that everyone liked and you just scratch your head wondering, gosh, I wonder why people like this book. I thought it was awful, right? You can't just be the center of your own universe and be like, you know, this book I did not like, therefore it is the worst book ever made. Because that's not true. Other people like it. Other people relate to it. You have to, and I think I think being able to step outside of yourself and, and observe the world in that in that respect is invaluable in terms of just, not just, not just for your skill set, not, not just for that, but also just as a human being. Yeah. Since you've created picture books, early readers, illustrated chapter books, and graphic novels, I'd love to know if there's overarching internal motivation that keeps you wanting to create books for kids and teens, even on a day that feels hard. So so here's, here's the thing. When I was a kid, I remember thinking, I was falling in love with movies, and I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, gosh, I'd love to make movies someday, right? And this was in the 1980s. And at the time when you're watching movies in the 1980s, you rarely saw Asian people on the screen. And if you did, you know, it, they were perceived one of two ways. One, you were either the bad guys or the, the henchmen that got beaten up by Jackie Chan in a Kung Fu movie, which just seemed to be the only roles for Asians back in the day in, in Hollywood. You like you were either getting beaten up by Jackie Chan or, or Steven Seagal or on the other end, you were the butt of all jokes. Right. You were in Police Academy. You were in 16 Candles and th- things like that. You were the one that talked funny. And 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 someone my age, you know, growing up. Culturally, my parents, they just never really uh, had a firm understanding about, you know, Western society uh, and the cultural zeitgeist. So a lot of it just relied on me trying to figure out things on my own. And a lot of those things that I kind of just measured by watching TV and movies and trying to figure out how I was supposed to act. Now, as a result of watching those things, your impression is, oh, I see 16 Candles. I see Police Academy, you know. so. I actually thought that my job in life in this country was to be the funny guy, right? That was my conclusion. And I think just from not seeing myself, because I didn't want to be that, I didn't want to be that guy who had to learn, you know, martial arts and fight Jackie Chan just to be in a movie or, or, or things like that. But, you know, I quickly realized that in a very young age, probably nine or 10 years old, I immediately realized, oh, that's never going to be a reality for me. I'm never going to make a movie. No one's going to give me a chance because I just don't see myself in these things, right? And so as I got older and I was really, you know, going deeper into my passion for art, 
Then there was the thought of maybe being an animator, maybe maybe telling stories because, you know, I was at an age where getting into anime and manga, you know, now it's popular. You go to Hot Topic, there's like anime shirts everywhere. And, you know, anybody can just like go online and watch entire series from Japan. But back in my day, like it was the punk thing to do where you would go to a comic convention and there'd be a guy who, uh, you know, went and took a trip to Japan and bought all these laser discs and then bootlegged them and recorded them all into VHS tapes, right? And then you would go up there and you'd pay the guy 35 bucks. He'd give you a VHS tape and, and uh, a manila folder with the script inside because it was never translated into English. And so you would go home, put the VHS tape in, and there was like this, this whole world that looked completely unlike the animation you see in the United States, where a lot of it was just for kids and it was just goofy and anvils falling on the head. Meanwhile, you know, Japan was doing a completely different thing, like filled with drama and action and love. And, and uh, you know, I'd be following along with this with Manila script and you'd just be following along with the episodes, just trying to figure things out. And it was just it was my it was my thing where I would just go to this. I would go to the comic conventions and then I would just give this creepy old dude like 35 bucks to give me a bootleg, you know, VHS tape of a movie that I, you know, that I just couldn't get enough of. And I was doing that for years. Just imbibing this entire cultural of Japanese anime just made me think, well, maybe I could be an animator. Maybe I could maybe I could make movies because then I don't have to be seen like no one has to see me and see that I'm Asian. I could just make animated features. And around that time when The Lion King came out, all these, you know, articles started coming out saying, if you can animate on a computer, you can make lots of money. And I thought, oh, that's my end. Like, that's the thing that I can do, you know, to, to, to break into the business. And that was the thing that kind of really kind of eased my parents into the idea that, oh, okay, maybe, maybe this is a legitimate kind of living. And so I remember going into art school and then taking my first computer animation course and absolutely hating it, you know, because it took 14 weeks to make one minute of film. And the and the software was so like user unfriendly, you know, it was like you could tell it was made by an engineer. And, you know, there were certain things. I just want to make this ball shiny or, or something. And, and instead it gives you this graph and says, well, ca calculate the ambience between a measure of one and zero on the sine wave. And you're just like, I just want to make the ball shiny, right? This is absolutely infuriating. And then it wasn't until I'm going down the hall and there's a children's book illustration and writing course, you know, which was started by David Shannon. But, you know, it was um, being taught by this lovely instructor by the name of Deborah Lauren Norse Lattimore. And she just broke down the basics of the children's publishing industry, how to get into how to get into it. You know, the size of the picture books being 32 pages and word count and the number of illustrations and just really selling the idea of how friendly the industry was. And for me, I thought this is what I really want, because animation is it requires a lot of people to tell a story. And it took me 14 weeks to make one minute of film. There has to be a better way to tell stories. And so I fell in love with children's book uh, illustration and creation because it was 32 pages. You worry about an editor. You worry about. Uh, you know, the art director and that and that's it. Right. And it, it just seemed it, it seemed like a tangible goal that that for me was all I ever wanted. I just wanted to be able to tell stories uh, and, and have them published because, you know, I think it's funny how there are sometimes some people that say, oh, I don't I don't care if people read my books. And I, I think that's being really insincere, you know, because. You're not the person, like, how many times have I heard people say, oh, yeah, I don't care if I win the Caldecott. And then you find out 
that they they didn't sleep the whole night before. That means you care. That doesn't mean you don't care. Okay, like don't be too cool to say that you don't care. All right, everybody cares. Everyone wants a good review. All right. So so it's been my outlet to tell stories because there is a beauty of telling stories to kids because kids aren't cynical. They they're up for a good story. Whereas like you know when you when you're trying to entertain entertain someone who's a little bit you know, older, like you're, you're getting into teenagers, you're getting into adults. Everyone has a very cynical view of everything. And, you know, it takes a lot to impress, or it might be a case where they just don't believe what you're trying to, to sell them. You know, they always feel like they're selling, that you're, they're being sold something. And there's, there's something about it that it's harder, it's harder to entertain someone when their guard is up. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't enjoy the challenge, but there is something pure about kids where you can tell a story and they're open to the idea. Obviously, you know, beginning my illustration career as a picture book illustrator, I mean, there's definitely things that I, I, I love. I love to draw and they just happen to be dinosaurs and robots and, and things <laughs> like that. And, you know, I started out my career as like the funny guy. And I think that just kind of came from my cultural upbringing uh, you know, growing up in the eighties. And and so I think that's what kind of led me on my way. And, you know, to this day, uh, you know, if I, if I'm working on a, if I'm working on my own books and it takes a lot longer, uh, I'll illustrate other people's manuscripts simply because I find each one to be a learning experience, just kind of seeing how writers think you, you learn a tremendous amount uh, from each experience, each project that you work on. It feels like you live and breathe art and sharing stories. And so I want to move on to talk specifically about the book you're here to talk about, which is a first time for everything. And I have to just say that I loved it. I was laughing out loud. Uh, but it's not your first graphic novel, but it is your first graphic novel memoir. So right. let, let me know if I'm mistaken, but the seed for this story was planted by your sons asking you when you first fell in love. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, to go a little bit further back, um, I was really, I was really touched by uh, Gene Yang's uh, novel, American Born Chinese. Like that was one of these stories where it just spoke to my soul. And I think one of the big parts that really struck me was he said the thing that made me re feel really uncomfortable. And that was the main character woke up one day and he was white, you know, and there was something about him that just was so thrilled to be white because it would just make life a lot easier. And he felt like he would be included just by changing the color of his skin. And I felt that. And I never said that to anybody because I always felt so ashamed of that thought, right? And so I had first met Gene back in 2010 at the Miami Book Festival. And that was when my first graphic novel, Sidekicks, came out. And, you know, we were we were hanging out. We got along really well. And, you know, we were sharing our stories about how we got into publishing uh, despite the fact that we both had parents that wanted us to grow up and be engineers and doctors and things like that. And we just related very, very closely in terms of our experiences. And Gene was the one that initially planted the seed and said, well, you should you should consider writing a, a memoir about that experience. And years went by. And, you know, I remember I remember being at a at a NCPE conference in Boston uh, and sitting in front of a bunch of librarians who asked me that same question about how I got into children's publishing. And, and, and I told them the whole story about, you know, my parents wanted me to be a doctor and things like that. And then, um, you know, I think it was a I think it was an editor from the Hornbook who emailed my editor 
uh, at Little Brown, uh, Connie Shu, who was working there as a as an editor at the time. And then the seed just kind of got planted. I want to say this was like 2013. And then the idea was, hey, you know, like, sounds like people want a, a memoir about this. Maybe you should consider writing one. And then what ended up happening was Beekle won the Caldecott Medal. And then I did a nine book series with Dave Pilkey. And then, you know, I worked with Mo Willems. And suddenly six years go by. And meanwhile, you're talking to all your other friends who had talked about doing memoirs before, you know, after after you had already said that you were planning on doing a memoir. And you've got like Jared Kozowska, you've got Vera Brosgall, you've got Shannon Hale, who who talked about it years after I'd, I, I had expressed the idea. And then here they've they've done multiple ones. Uh, you know, and and I have my first one coming out in, you know, I'm just I'm just a late bloomer, but it's been a fantastic experience. And here I am. Yeah. So I initially had another idea and it was going to be a story about this relationship I have with my parents and a period when my mom had breast cancer. And there was a lot of cultural uh, headbutting about, you know, how I was being raised and how my parents wanted me to grow up and be raised, you know, with, you know, kind of sacrificing these, this Thai uh, cultural belief system, you know, and and I, I was growing up so American, so Westernized. And, I, you know, I remember writing multiple drafts for, for a number of years. And it was just really painful because, you know, I was doing, a, I had a lot of headbutting with my parents growing up. And so I remember my editor just saying to me, there's some feelings that need to be sorted out. I don't know if you're ready to write this book, right? And I just kept trying. And then my son, yeah, he was 13, my oldest son at the time. He was, And he just came up to me. And I was really touched by this because this is not something I ever would have done with my own father. And he asked me, he said, Dad, when was the first time you fell in love? And I didn't even realize it at the time until I spoke to some of the other mothers at, at the school. But it turned out that there were their daughters were at an age where they were like, hey, you know, your son is kind of cute. And, you know, I'd like to I'd like to just hang out with him a little bit more. And so that's where this was coming from. My son asked me, you know, dad, when was the first time you ever fell in love? And I had to stop and I had to think about it. And that's where this trip came up. You know, it was this three week trip. And it was it was it was one of these things where it was kind of the stuff of legend, you know, where you would go to to the school, you would go to high school and, you know, all, all your friends who didn't go on the trip you know, would say, oh my gosh, you were on that trip. You did that and you did this. And like, they let you get away with that. And, you know, it was, it was one of these things that was always just a really solid icebreaker, but I had never, I had never originally thought of it as a story. And so I'm telling, I'm telling my kids the story and their jaws are just dropped wide open because, you know, a lot of things have changed over those years where parent, you know, adults would just kind of let you run free, you know, just don't come back until the sun's down. Like that's, that's kind of the way we were raised. And it just blew my kids' minds because that's not how kids are these days. That's not how, you know, most parents raise their kids. Like, we want to know who you are at all times, you know? That's kind of the thing now. The world's dangerous. Go out and go, you know, let me know. Call me every half hour, things like that. I remember telling my editor, Connie, this, and she stopped me and she says, hey, wait, how come you've never told me this story before? And I said, oh, well, because we're writing this story about my mom having breast cancer. And she said, no, no, no. This story has everything. It has beginning, middle, and end. It's, you know, it's a summer, it's a summer romance. And the best part about it is that you actually lived it. And it took place in Europe. It took place in Paris and all these other places. This is your next book. And she told me, just stop what you're doing right now and write this book. And this book will teach you how to write memoirs. 
because I did have a very difficult time breaking up and bending the truth. Uh, and in this particular case, working on this story, in this story, every, you know, I'm here to tell you that everything in the book actually happened, but not necessarily in the order or, you know, necessarily the the way it was presented, but everything in the book happened. And so everything was, it was a very therapeutic book. It's the thing that got me through the pandemic. It, it really kind of disposed my cynicism. Like I'm not angry at the world anymore. Like there, there was just something wonderful about being able to reflect on that really beautiful moment of your childhood. And then also when you're working on the book, realizing that those feelings that you have when you were 13 are still in there, like, like it was fresh as yesterday. Like it was just something beautiful about that. And, you know, I think, I think the intent of the book was letting my kids know that the world is not as dangerous and as scary as the media and the news set it out to be. And, and, and we're at a point now where I think we've all gone through a global pandemic. Um, you know, we've gone through just a, a divided country and, and things like that. And, and I feel like the world, social media, the news is just constantly selling us bad news, right? And I think if people were to actually go out into the world and experience it for themselves, I think the truth is that the world is beautiful and people are a lot friendlier than, than you would expect. When you said specifically the words that you're not angry at the world anymore, like yeah. that sentiment for me, came across so beautifully in the book because everybody knows that those early teen years and middle school is like awkward. Kids just, you know, everybody's trying to make it, make it, just make it through. They can be really unkind to each other, whether it's intentional or or not. Um, and so I love that you had these really awkward moments and you deliver them with such humor. And then you also get this feeling as you get to the end that you are not angry at the world anymore. And those events, while they happened and you don't, you know, sugarcoat them and be like, ah, it doesn't matter. Like they did matter, but they shaped you who, who you are and you're not going to let them hold you down. And so I loved that element. And so when you said the words, you're not angry at the world anymore, I just needed you to know that that came across really well. So, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to name names, but like the last six years for us in this country have been a little tough. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to name names, right? <laughs> but you kind of get to a point where, you know, I mean, what the, the term that everyone was saying was doom scrolling, right? Because they would just go through their Twitter feed and just like read bad news. And like, everyone just kind of got into a rut. They were just looking for horrible things just to kind of confirm in their own minds that the world was just an awful place. And now I think we just kind of, I think part of the big reason why everybody is so divided in this country is because we've just deeply rooted ourselves into this cynical belief that the world is bad and that you paint the other person who disagrees with you as other. And I'll give you an example, okay? So I remember, you know, having to go to San Antonio, Texas to go do, uh, you know, an event. And, oh God, you know, like I am, I am guilty. I am guilty of those impressions, you know, because you had you hear all this stuff about Texas and you're thinking, oh, gosh, Texas, I, like the, they don't really, you know, I think the thing that you your impression is and everyone has an impression of everything initially, everyone's guilty of it. And so the impression of Texas, whether Texans like it or not, is that they're anti-abortion, uh, they love their guns, 
uh, and they're all about banning books. And then you go into San Antonio and you fly in there and you just have this impression like, oh God, San Antonio, I'm just going to get, I'm going to get there. I'm going to do my thing and get my plane and get out. And then you go there and you meet the people and you interact with them and they're beautiful people. And the town, the Riverwalk, you know, the Alamo, all these little places, like when you actually meet these people and you interact with them, they're lovely, lovely people. And that's when I stopped and I thought to myself, oh, I'm the jerk. I'm guilty of what everybody else is doing. I made an opinion about somebody or something without seeing for myself. And that's a problem on my part. It's interesting because after, after, you know, after these tumultuous years of politics, and this is a crazy thing, I'm able to dissociate myself from all the bad news in the world. Not to say that it's not concerning, not to say that I don't care, but there is a point in your mental health where you have to stop and you have to think to yourself, how much can I affect change in this? How much do I want to get involved in the drama of this? Because that might be the thing that ruins my entire day. So I kind of got to a point where I just said, the world will be the world and I'm going to live in it the best that I can. And that is all I can do. I worry about my kids. I worry about my family. I worry about my friends and neighbors around me. But beyond all that, it's out of my control and I have to be okay with that. And if it comes to things that make you angry, I think six years is a long time to be angry at the world, right? And so one of the beauties of exploring the world and seeing how beautiful it is is that you realize that the thing that you're imbibing on social media and on TV and the media and the news, it's fodder that people feed you because they want you coming back for more. They want you to be afraid of the world. You know, everybody wants, you know, to break the bad news and, and you know, you fall, you fall victim to it and, and, you, and you believe it. Like I said, I had a paper route when I was a kid, when I was 13 years old. Whether or not that's a good idea, I don't know. But when you think about it today, Every parent would think that you were out of your mind to let your kid ride a bicycle at six in the morning delivering newspapers, right? That would never happen anymore. Back in the day, it was completely fine. But now it's just like, no, 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 don't let your kid ride the bike alone in this neighborhood. It's dangerous, you know? And so that's just kind of how we've shifted as a culture. I think we know too much because because of the internet and, and, and things like that. I could be totally wrong. Maybe I'm being naive in in having an optimistic outlook in the world. But I will say this. I think we're coming along one of the most empathetic and sincerely kind generation of kids. I think think we're doing something right. I think we're going there. There is something about going through something awful so that the kids can, can see the awfulness and want to make change, right? I think there's something you know, genuinely a, a light in the darkness, if you will. But growing up when you're a kid, I think other people's pain tends to be their currency, right? You're just trying to get through life. And if you, if you don't feel good about yourself, if you don't feel great, but you see someone else who's maybe down in the dumps, you know, you will, I don't, from my experience, it was like, well, at least I'm not that person. And, and if there's anything that I can take solace in is that, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm, you know, if I have to, I'll step on that person's throat just to make myself feel better. Like cruelty was kind of a currency, right? Yeah. And 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 then when you reflect on it, it was like when you think about the popular kids in school, I don't think anybody can really explain why 
those kids were quote unquote cool. You know, I don't think a lot of those popular kids were even liked. It was just like, I think the thing that was appealing was that it looked like they had it together. You know, they were wearing cool clothes. They were, you know, they just knew what to say. There was just that they were exuding this confidence. But, you know, like if you were to say, oh, so-and-so back in high school, remember the popular kid? And you're like, yeah, I didn't really like that guy. Like you find out like a mob of people like, oh, yeah, no, that guy was kind of a jerk, right? That's kind of the truth about popular kids. Like no one likes you. It just seemed like you had everything together, you yeah. know, and that, and that was, and that's the thing. It's just like the currency because no one has any life experiences. No one knows what to, how to feel. And so, you know, for me growing up in a small town, you know, you have this horrible incident where you have to do a speech in front of the, the entire junior high and you end up choking. That was everyone's currency against me. It was, oh my gosh. Maybe my life isn't great, but I wasn't Dan Santa. I didn't choke in front of the entire school trying to do an AA Milne poem. And as and as a result, it was like I was I was everyone's I was everyone's foil. Everyone was just like, at least I'm not Dan. And I remember for years just harboring this this resentment for AA Milne, thinking like, oh man, that poem, poem Spring Morning, that ruined my life. And I remember being, oh, I would avoid AA Milne work. And I really had a resentment for that poem, thinking like that was the reason for my for my problems when I realized, you know, much later on that I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Anybody could have been thrown on that stage and been utterly destroyed, yeah. you know? Yeah. The best, the best thing that you're saying right now about A.A. A. Milne is that this entire book starts with the quotes <laughs> at the beginning. And I don't want to give anything away, but there's more A.A. Sure. A. A. Milne references, but it starts with the quote that's, we didn't know we were making memories. Yeah. We were just having fun. So right. I I love that everything you just said. And then here we are. And your entire book is starting with an A.A. Milne quote. So what do you want listeners to know about the significance of that particular quote? So this is funny because when I when I initially when my editor told me to write this story, I remember contacting, you know, some author friends of mine, like Raina Telgemeier, because, you know, she's she is she is a master of memoirs. Right. And I remember reading her book, Drama. And in drama, there's a particular character in the story that she she mentions having affection for. And so, you know, in this particular case, uh, in this story, there is a girl. Her name is Amy. And she was the first girl I ever kissed. And, you know, it was the first time I ever truly fell in love. And I remember asking Raina, I said, oh, so, I, you know, my editor told me to write this story. And I'm just wondering if I should tell Amy. And Raina said, well, obviously, yes, because you don't want to publish a book and then have her find out the day that it comes out that you wrote a story about her. That would be the worst thing you could do. You have to tell her. And so I remember stopping and thinking, OK, well, how am I going to how am I going to break this news to her? Like, I, I don't want to just, you know, go to her and be like, hey, remember, remember that that trip, you know, to Europe where, you know, you and I. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, we were kind of like boyfriend, girlfriend for, for a while. Like I'm writing a book about that. Right. So my subtle way of doing it was I just got everybody into a Facebook group, you know, uh, maybe about like six people, uh, who I remember from the trip. And I said, Hey guys, remember that, remember that crazy trip to Europe that we took? Everybody just started chiming in like, Oh yeah. Everyone just have wonderful memories of the trip. And I had to say, I'm writing a book about that. And I remember Amy responding with, wait, whoa, really? And then, and then, and then I, I, I wrote to her on a separate thread saying, yes, you know, um, so 
I don't want you to feel uneasy about this. You know, like this isn't me like harboring old deep feelings that I've been holding for 30 years. You know, this is just this is just a story that I think is a good story. Uh, and my editor agrees that this is something that I think a lot of kids would relate to. Right. And so interviewing all the people that I remember from the trip, asking about their memories and things like that, it it, it turned out like everyone has just beautifully fond memories of the trip. And it turned into like this trip down memory lane. And it was like it was like this reunion that we all had. Um, and, I, and, and the beautiful part is that all of us in some way of our own circles have told this story to, to our circle of friends. And so there is something about this experience that I think we were unaware of. It was just, I think when people tell memories about their lives, I don't think they're aware that they're telling a story. The amazing part is that it brought us, I mean, in the process of making this book, you know, there were other there were other events that that I worked into the story because they would just reach out to me and say, hey, remember, like, remember this drawing that you drew of a dragon for my father? Like, I, I went to my father's house. He still has it hanging on his wall. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, that would be a great addition to the story because I need to have some relatability to your character. And then I remember talking to my mother and my mother asking me like, oh, who's in the book? And I said, oh gosh, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, uh, and this girl, Shelly. And my mom's like, Shelly, I remember Shelly. Do you remember that time when she had her period and she was wearing a white dress? You came to me with her and she was wearing your sweater. And I thought, that's really weird. Why is Shelly wearing your sweater? And, and you asked her to give us, if we could give her a ride home because she had her period and she was wearing your sweater to cover to cover herself up. And I remember like looking at my mom, I'm like, mom, what are you talking about? I don't remember any of this. And my mom just spewed all the details like, oh yeah, this happened and this happened and this happened. And like, you know, like, like it, I thought it was, a, I was a very proud moment because you were being such a gentleman to her. And I remember reaching out to Shelly, you know, and, and DMing her and saying, okay, Shelly, I wrote this scene in this book that my editor loves and thinks it should be in there. I don't want it in there without you knowing about it. And I want to know if it's okay. And her first response was, I remember her first response was, oh God, was I, was I a totally, was I totally mean to you? And I said, <laughs> no, 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 probably nothing that I didn't deserve back then. But you know, this is a little bit different. This is about a time when, when you had your period and I lent you my sweater. I don't remember any of this, but my mother remembers every second of it. And so <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you remember it, but, you know, I, I just, I wrote the scene and I just, I want your blessing and I, and I hope it's okay. It's not with any malicious intent. And she read it and she came back to me, you know, like 10 minutes later and she said, I love this. You know, this is totally, this is totally honest and real. And, you know, I don't remember this, but I would not be shocked if my mother, who I hate, sent me to school wearing a white dress while I was on my period. Right. And so we all have these amazing memories of this trip. And it just turned out that it makes a beautiful story collectively. Yeah. I think it's so funny to read some of the things that you got up to on this trip. And yeah. I really love that the author's note in the end, which, you know, obviously describes that it was a different era. But I All love right. I love that you trust that the readers need to read this and can handle reading it. And 
it's just done so well. And I'm wondering, like, is there a specific event that feels like a highlight to you in the book? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to preface by saying that, uh, and I could, I could be wrong here. I do, you know, that we, we are in a generation where I feel like, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I feel, I feel like parents do hover over their kids too much. And, and if they were to sit back and reflect what they were like when they were kids, we didn't have those kind of restrictions. And guess what? We're okay, relatively, maybe a little mentally scarred from our parents. But, you know, uh, for the most part, I think kids learn a tremendous amount from the mistakes they make in life, right? So I, I experienced so many, you know, like first experiences on this trip that, uh, you know, if I were to, if I were to single one out, I think, I think sneaking into Wimbledon was probably the most surreal thing. Now in real life, so in the, in the book, it happens on the last day, but in real life, it happened on day two of this trip. Right. And so one of, so one of the first cities we went to was London. And, and I remember how mind blowing it was because we would, we would be on a bus touring around the city and then we would have lunch and then one o'clock, two o'clock would come around. And then the tour guide would just say, all right, kids, enjoy the city. We'll meet at this restaurant at, you know, at at 5 or 6 p.m. And I remember all of us just kind of standing back and thinking like, wait, what do you like? We can do whatever we want. You know, we have we have the London Underground at our disposal and we can just run off and do whatever we want. I mean, I, I think back in the time we thought, okay, this is pretty awesome because you know, London isn't that far different from the United States. Everyone speaks, you know, English. So if we, if we were to get lost, we could find our way. And I remember just thinking Wimbledon is going on right now and I want to go check it out. And everybody else was doing, you know, the real, the real civil thing of like, oh, you want to see Big Ben, Uh, you know, so-and-so wants to go see Buckingham Palace and and all these other things. And like, I was like, I want to go to Wimbledon. Anybody want to go to Wimbledon with me? And it was my one friend, uh, Darren, uh, who who said, "I'll go to I'll go to Wimbledon with you, right?" And so we get on we get on the underground, and what ends up happening? And so this isn't actually in the book, but we end up passing the Wimbledon stop, and then we end up in in an abandoned train yard. Well, we end up in a train yard, right? And for <laughs> oh my god, and for like forty minutes, the train didn't move anywhere, and we're just sitting, two kids alone in this train yard no we couldn't find a soul we're just walking around trying to figure out like where how do we get out of here and where do we go do we just walk along the train tracks and like get back to the city you know and we're sitting there and we're just walking around trying to find someone and then we finally see a train that was moving and just like i don't know just like some hobos out of an old black and white movie we're like running and like trying to hop onto it and like we get back and then we get into the wimbledon stop and we go off right and we get back and we're coming out to wimbledon and now my my first impression is that if the stop's called wimbledon for some reason it's going to stop right in front <laughs> of the tennis club right and so I get off and it's this cute little neighborhood. And I'm thinking to myself, like, where's the tennis, you know? And I'm, I'm starting to panic a little bit, you know? And, and, and my friend is just saying, like, listen, this place is called Wimbledon. I'm sure, I'm sure the tennis is somewhere around here. If we just walk around, I bet we'll find it. So we're just walking. We're just walking. And it's raining on and off throughout the day. And then I just get to, I see this guy, I see this guy gardening in front of his beautiful, quaint little home. And I'm like, excuse me, sir, 
you know, uh, we're looking, we're looking for Wimbledon. <laughs> he looked at me like, uh, son, you're, you're in Wimbledon. You're in Wimbledon. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, oh, and he said, oh, no, no, we're looking, we're looking for the tennis. We're looking for the tennis court. And he's like, oh, the tennis court. Oh, you go down this road a kilometer and you make a left. You'll see it on your left. And so we walk down, we walk down a kilometer and then over to our left. It's not Wimbledon. It's a park with tennis courts. And I'm thinking to myself, why would he think that these two American kids who aren't even holding tennis rackets would want to come to tennis courts in a park, you know, to like, tennis? like we want to go to Wimbledon. And I see this little kid coming along with his, like his little school outfit and a backpack. And we say, we're looking, we're looking for the tennis tournament. Right. <laughs> and, and he's like, oh yeah, just follow this chain link fence. You're, you're going to come along to this, this golf course. Uh, and, and it'll just be down there like another, it'll be down there like in another kilometer, right? And so we walk down there and we get there and like, you could just feel the energy. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I didn't plan any further beyond that. I was just thinking to myself, like, so this is Wimbledon. This is the outside of Wimbledon. Like, this is every, this is what my hopes and dreams were, right? And then an announcer says, okay, we're going to be letting people in, you know, in the next 20 minutes, get your three pounds ready and you can walk the grounds. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, we can walk into Wimbledon. Meanwhile, Darren knows nothing about tennis. He cares nothing about tennis, but he's on this adventure with me, right? And I'm like, we're going in. And, and so paid our three pounds. I'm walking around, I'm walking around the grounds and I'm thinking, well, if there's a rain delay, because it'd been raining on and off all day. And I'm thinking if there's a rain delay, maybe I could go take pictures of center court, right? And so I just I just walk in like no one stops us because I think the idea was, well, if these two kids are here, they must obviously be here with some supervising adult. Like they can't just be in here without any supervision. So no one ever paid attention to why we were in there. And we walk in. And I remember seeing Center Court and it was just so electric because, you know, back in the day, you could only watch Wimbledon on HBO or NBC. And, you know, I never thought I'd be on the other side of the planet actually standing in Center Court. Right. And, and this, you know, the passion of tennis came because, you know, like I said, my father was grooming me to be a doctor someday. And, and, and tennis was like one of those like doctor sports that you just had to play. You know, that was one of those weird things. And, I, you know, I was just one of these weird kids are like, you like tennis? Like, you don't like basketball and football? Like, you like tennis? And so here I am in center court with Darren. You know, we just sit down and I'm just soaking up the energy, right? And then and then slowly, you know, they're, they're removing the rain tarp and the sideline judges are coming out and the chair umpire is coming out and, and they're squeegeeing the grass to get the drying off the grass. And, and the stands are starting to slowly fill up and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, are they, are they actually going to play, you know? And, and then Stefan Edberg, Stefan Edberg and John McEnroe come out. No way. And, and they're getting ready to play. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we have to stay here and see them warm up and they're warming up. And then this couple, this lovely couple, they come up to us and they're like, uh, excuse me, these aren't, these aren't your seats. And I'm just like, uh, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. We, 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 you know, we, we just came in here. We want to take pictures of center court and we, you know, we just didn't, we didn't, I mean, we didn't know, but like here they're playing tennis and we're just, I don't know, are these your seats? Are we sitting in your seats? And they say, no, these aren't your, these aren't our seats. These are our friend's seats. But turns out that they had to leave because they had a very important dinner date that they had to go on, but they weren't expecting like a three and a half hour rain delay. So 
because they never turn their tickets into the ticket window. Because the way it works is you're supposed to turn in the tickets and then they give the tickets to people who are waiting in line to have the seat. He said, they never turned in their tickets. So since you're already here, you might as well just stay and watch the match. That's awesome. And we were just like, oh my God, this is crazy. So we sit there, we're watching, we're watching the last set of the 1989 men's semifinal tennis match. And then, you know, took about like a, you know, like 45 minutes. And then by the time it was done, everyone like jumps out of their seats or starting taking pictures of this blonde haired woman. Like, and you know, everyone's taller than us. We're trying to look and, you know, we're thinking it's princess Diana. We're like, Oh my God, princess Diana's here. Princess Diana's here. And, you know, 2019 comes around and I, you know, I find out that it wasn't princess Diana. It turns out that I actually sat a couple rows behind John McEnroe's wife, uh, Tatum O'Neill. He was married to Tatum O'Neill at the time. So anyway, (laughs) Tennis match is done. Yeah. 13 years old. We were supposed to meet at this restaurant at 7 p.m., but we didn't get back to the hotel till 9 p.m. And we go back and I'm talking to the teacher, Mrs. Bjork. I, I run to the door. I knock on the door. She opens the door. She had freaked out of her mind because it's only day two of the trip. And she's looking at me. She's like, where have you been? Like, we've been looking for you everywhere. We had no idea where you were. And, and I'm sitting there wearing like this Wimbledon sweatband and wristbands and like a bootleg t-shirt. And I'm like, we snuck into Wimbledon. We watched this match. It was the most amazing thing ever. And she looks at me and she's like, wait, wait, what? I'm not even mad. Like, that's the most amazing story I've ever heard. <laughs> Never let your parents know what happened, you know? So, <laughs> and so that that's probably, it's one of those cases where it's just like, it's one of those, it's out of a movie. Like, I have no business being there and somehow I'm there. So like, that's usually yeah. when I talk about this trip, I talk about that experience, but I kind of forget to tell everybody about the rest of the amazing trip. That's that's awesome. And it's one of those examples of like, you weren't doing anything wrong. You were just following your intuition and desires of like being at Wimbledon and taking yeah. photos and yeah. circum- the circumstances. Just by, be- just by being curious, right? Like yes. that really is the thing that can lead you to life experiences. Just be curious. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about illustrations. This is why I love graphic novels, because there's these little nuggets that get planted throughout that require zero words. So for for me, just as an example, the era was set as a reader simply by seeing images like the original Smurfs on on a TV screen or the 80s Fanner can or Walkmans and mixtapes. And I loved it with just two lines and some images. I knew instantly that you watched the movie Rain Man on the airplane flight without you even mentioning the title of the movie. So is there like a specific, something specific that you illustrated that makes you particularly happy about in the book? So, uh, you know, like, so every image in the book actually has some significance from the trip. So in particular, Rain Man, um, so, so in the story, because, you know, the trip ends and Amy and I go our separate ways, but in, in, in real life, Amy and I, Amy and I flew back together to St. Louis. That was the connecting flight before we went back to LA. And so we sat together on the plane and we watched Rain Man together. And so that was just kind of like a little nod to the memory I had from that movie. And like, you know, the, the whole thing is just, it's just interlaced with like little details here and there the uh the moment about when kelly was was sleepwalking so in that particular case i actually was at the tucson book festival uh last year and she's she's now a, a veterinarian 
And she came to the festival so that we could have dinner. And I hadn't seen her in 33 years. And what was amazing was we were talking to each other. And what was mind blowing was that we realized that we hardly know anything about each other. But the three weeks of that trip was just such a tremendous impact on our minds that, you know, like we almost kind of, I think of her as like family, right? And that was something really, really beautiful about the experience. And so, you know, I remember seeing her and then letting her, she, she was, she said, uh, did you by any chance bring the manuscript? And I had, I had a PDF of it on my computer, on my, on my uh, iPad. And, and I said, uh, yeah, here. And, you know, she read it and, you know, there's that scene where she's sleepwalking and she's laughing. And, and the funny thing was, I, I asked her, I said, I said, so do you still sleepwalk? And she said, you know what? That was the only time in my life <laughs> that I've ever had any sleepwalking. And, and she was just like, I don't know why it happened, but it just it just happened that day. And now it exists. <laughs> it exists in a book, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's like all these all these little things that I remember she was like, I remember she was expressing how like it wasn't embarrassing to her. But, you know, in the story, I kind of make it sound like, you know, she was embarrassed. Um, another, another, another scene in the book that, you know, bends the truth a little bit that I think, uh, still works is, uh, the fondue scene. I remember eating the fondue. I remember talking about the tradition of having to kiss someone next to you if the bread falls into the bread, you know, into the, into the cheese. That was not what led up to the first kiss with Amy. What ended up happening was we were on a bus to Switzerland and we were sitting together and I remember politely asking her if I could give her a kiss. And she said, yes. And then by the time I was ready to give her a kiss, we went into a tunnel and everything went black. <laughs> and so I kiss her and like, it's dark. I can't see anything. And by the time we come out of the tunnel, she's like holding her ear and she's looking at me like really <laughs> weird. Like, what was that? Right. And then, of course, you know, my friend Brandon on the trip, he looks at me and he's just like, did you just kiss her on the ear? You know, the whole bus was like, oh my God, Dan, Dan kissed her on the ear. And it was just like this really, it was like this really funny, funny uh, moment that we had. So, you know, it's just the, the, the thing, you know, I, I draw all these landmarks, like, you know, you draw, you draw Notre Dame Cathedral, you draw Buckingham Palace, but ultimately you know, you don't remember the facts. Like if I stood in front of Notre Dame, I couldn't tell you anything about the place, right? But I can tell you the little things. I can tell you the little things that happened on the trip. Those are the things that stay with you. You know, the, the ones that elicit, you know, yeah. feelings, the one that, that that give you emotion. And that's what I mean about storytellers. It's It's not about the places you go. It's about the experiences you have. Yeah. You know? You don't yeah. have to go see, you don't have to see Notre Dame, Notre Dame Cathedral to appreciate Paris. Go to Paris and you'll be having experiences there. Those are the parts that matter. Yeah. All right. Well, I wanted to speak quickly about one particular character who probably because I'm a mom, I absolutely loved how you portrayed your mom. This, the humor that you added with your mom, she I just freaking loved her. So I, you mentioned like a breast cancer story. And so I, I hope that she is well as I'm speaking. Um, 
Good, good. I'm glad she's well. And I just, I just love her. So tell me about putting your mom in the book. So my mom, so the thing about my mom is that she's not a very tall woman. She's four foot 11, but I feared her, (laughs) you know, know? if she knew how to put me in place and I'll be honest, like I reflect on my life and I was, I was, I was a bit of a hyper kid. Right. So one of the things was that her lupus, her lupus manifested after I was born. And there was a period where I felt a lot of guilt because I thought, I thought that she got lupus because of me. There was a little bit of guilt. I know they're not, they're not related. It's a separate genetic thing, but I remember feeling really bad about, gosh, I felt really bad about being born because I felt like I did, it was a, it was a, I felt like I made her sick, right? And, you know, my mom came from a very large family. She was the oldest of seven. And she had expressed many times that she always wanted four kids. And because of lupus, she could only have me. And so there was a part of, there's a thing about Asian culture where you kind of feel like you owe your parents a lot because they gave you life. And so there, there was a part of me that had this duty that felt like I need to be a doctor. I need to be that perfect son for them because I'm all they have, right? They have one shot at this. And I think that's why overall I was just a straight and narrow kid because my mom went through so much, you know, she had been in the hospital for, for a few times. She had lupus, she had breast cancer and things like that. And I never wanted to complicate her life with anything more than that because she's already going through a tremendous amount so you know I I would do I would go grocery shopping with her where at a certain point like maybe kids are like oh I don't want to go grocery shopping with you it's boring right I was still that kid I was a mama's boy like I would go out and I would do groceries I would do the yard work she'd want me to cut a whole ficus tree down with like a little handsaw you know I'd be like okay mom I love you you know I would just do all these things just to please her but another part about it was I always wanted to make her laugh because I always want, I mean, that was kind of my way of making sure that she was happy and she was in, enjoying life, you know, because like, for example, I, I signed up for Little League soccer. I, I signed up for ASO soccer, but, you know, because because sunlight can aggravate her her body because of the lupus, she would have to watch it from underneath the trees, but the trees were like super far out. So whenever... She always took me to soccer practice, always watched all my games and stuff like that. But she had to watch it from the inconvenience of like from the far other end of the field. And, you know, because because of her condition, you know, and it was like she always made compromises to make sure that I could I could have the life that I wanted. But, you know, it it, it was it was, at you know, added an inconvenience to her. And so, you know, my my relationship with my mom was always very special. Because, you know, my dad, my dad was very much about being a doctor, making money. And so I was home with her all the time. And she took me to karate lessons and, you know, soccer practice and baseball and basketball. You know, she, you know, she guided me through getting ready for college and things like that. And I remember her being really heartbroken about when I went to college because, you know, in a weird way, it was like, I'm just being left with your dad. And that kind of sucks. You know, like, you know, it's a funny thing. And so I was like, I was really my mom's best friend. I, I wanted to, I wanted to tell this story to just honor her because, you know, like if it wasn't for her ability to see what I really needed, and I think that's something beautiful about parents and mothers in particular, is that, you know, I think, I think there's this bond that you have coming from, you know, coming from their womb, 
that they just have like this sixth sense of knowing, oh, something else is up, right? And she knew that I was being raised and, and you know, I was growing up in a very white, conservative, rural Christian town. And I was just one of a handful of Asian kids that just stuck out like a sore thumb. And she just, she knew life would be a lot different if I lived someplace that had some semblance of a tighter Asian community. You can have an Asian community, but then those are broken up into subsets of Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Filipino, what have you. But where I'm from, it's a really rare case to find someone who's Thai. You know, if you find someone in that time and era, uh, someone from Thailand, the thought is like, how did you end up here? Right. And so that was another part of my identity that really became conflicted because as much as they wanted me to embrace my Asianness, the closest we could do was to go to like the Chinese, you know, New Year festival or something like that. And I would hang around other Asian kids that were embracing their Chinese heritage, but like, oh yeah, hi, I'm, 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 I'm Thai, but like I'm hanging out here because you're also Asian kids. And there was just like this disconnect about, you know, not being Thai. And, you know, there was something that my mom felt, maybe she felt like she had let me down because it was something that was quickly given up because there was really no community to like really embrace that. And, you know, the other part was I, I couldn't speak the language and that, and that's always a sensitive thing, especially when you get older, like, Oh gosh, I really regret dropping the ball, not learning Thai. Right. And, and, you know, even going through college, like learning a foreign language was always my glass jaw. It was like always the hardest thing. And, you know, my mom watching me grow up, watching me, you know, kind of struggle at times, she knew how important a trip like this would probably be for me. Now, I never told her about, you know, these awful things that happened in junior high. She never knew about me choking in front of the school. She never, you know, knew about me, you know, being laughed at by kids or, 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 or whatever. There was just a part of her that just knew and understood that there was something lacking in terms of who I was. And, and she knew that getting out of that town and seeing how great the world was, would be something that was such an invaluable experience for her because she, you know, my father and I, before she got sick, my father, my father and my mother, you know, they, they went and saw the world and one of their favorite cities was Salzburg, you know, and they, they, you know, this, this trip was coming up and they looked at the brochure that I hid in my backpack and was like, oh yeah, we went to Paris. We went to Salzburg. We love all these places. You should check it out. Like you probably see how beautiful the world is. Like we see it, you know? It's funny because there's a scene in the beginning of the book where I'm at the airport, I'm wearing my Buddha necklace and she, she finds it. She finds it. She's like, why are you, why are you wearing this? And I said, oh, because I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm embracing my heritage, you know? And she's like, well, wear it. Someone's going to cut your head off and take it. And I'm thinking like, mom, that's a little extreme. Like you're going to cut off my head. And she's no qualms. She's like, take it off. You know, I'm like, okay, geez, like you don't have to yell at me. Right. And and what I find adorable about my mom is that she can take things to such extremes. Like back in the day, if, if you remember, like there'd be hitchhikers, you know, just like, you know, thumbing it and just, you know, like sometimes they'd even entice you by holding wads of cash being like, hey, if you if you give me a ride, I'll give you this wad of cash. I remember one time we were entering the freeway in like this in this uh, large uh, Chevrolet station wagon. We were getting on the freeway, probably going like 45, 50 miles an hour. And I remember my mom. I remember mom saying, 
are the doors locked? And I said, yeah, why? It's like, there's a, there's a man hitchhiking and I'm afraid he might jump on the car and steal a ride. <laughs> and I'm just like, mom, we're going 50 miles an hour. Like <gasps> they'd be completely out of their minds to try to do that. It's just like, buckle up, we're going, you know? <laughs> and that was like my mom, like my mom would just take things to such, such extremes. And I just find it so adorably hysterical. Yeah. Well, I found your mom adorably hysterical. <laughs> it was great. Well, Dan, I could keep asking you a gazillion questions, but I'm going to finish up with one last one. And that is what impact do you hope this book has on readers? The impact I hope that this has on readers is that I hope that kids, a few things, I hope that kids see the entire world in a different light. Okay. I know that's a tall, that's a tall order to ask. I want I want them to understand that the world is actually a lot kinder than you think. And I think and I think by by harboring your reservations about everything and being curious and being willing to experience new things is going to change who you are as a person. And I think by understanding how big and vast the world is, you're going to realize that no matter how lonely you feel, or, or how out of place you are, there is a place for you in this world. I think, I think the best way to say it, I think the best, I think the best piece of advice or, or something that I want to leave kids with ultimately is you will be okay. No matter what happens, you will be okay. And, and being a man here, 48 years of age, thinking about the painful moments that I experienced the bizarre part is that despite how painful they were when I was younger, understanding that the world is so vast in the big picture of it all, those painful memories mean nothing because they're so insignificant compared to the rest of the world. And the weirdest part of it all, and the thing that I actually love the most is that by the time you're done with, with all this and, and you know you're done reading the book, you're going to realize that you're going to embrace those those painful moments. They make you who you are. And, and the weird part is that as, as much as it haunted me, I'm now at a place where I realize I would never give it up. I would, I would do it again. And that's and that's life. And that's you take it with the ups and downs, but it shapes you as a person. And I think with the help of understanding that you will be okay, this life is beautiful and it and it should be lived. It shouldn't be something that you're doing over a phone or in your room, you know, but you do it when you're ready. Yes. Well, Dan, that was a beautiful response. So thank you so much for, I'm just, I have to say it, you are a funny guy, thank but you. you're not just a funny guy, right? And I just, I'm so grateful for the contributions that you make to the world of children's books and everything that you put out there is just so incredibly done and heartfelt and, as I said, funny. So thank you for being you. Thank you for your art. And thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. These were lovely questions. This is probably one of my favorite interviews that I've done ever. This was amazing. <laughs> like, like, you know, these questions, they just came from... Like I was, I was allowed to bear my soul. I wasn't just talking about craft, you know? Thank you so much for joining us on this quest for growing readers. Be sure to check out our show notes. You'll find links to order a copy of Dan Santat's 
a first time for everything. If you like this show, remember you can hear it on Apple Podcasts, Chromecast, Spotify, or anywhere else you enjoy listening. Subscribe to the show to get new episodes as soon as they launch. If you're enjoying our book chats, please leave us a review. And while you're at it, tell a friend to come and have a listen. The Growing Readers Podcast is a production of the Children's Book Review. To discover more fantastic books, just like A First Time for Everything, I hope you'll visit us at thechildrensbookreview.com.